So one of the things that, you, since I'm so new here, you guys probably do not know about me, but my wife and any of my former uh, friends can attest to is um, I, I had this, this odd obsession with fad dieting. Uh, and we've been reading a book with Jesse, and it was kind of convicting because I guess that's sort of an American thing. Um, but whenever like, a, there's a new diet, I'm always so interested to try it. Uh, but I, I get a little bored and I lose discipline and so I never really stick with it. So I've tried every diet under the sun. I've tried keto and Atkins and intermittent fasting and um, as you can see, it, I, I'm the physical representation that I don't last very long in these diets. But, um, but you know, just, I, I think it's just, it's just interesting, fun. I, I grew up playing sports and, um, you know, when you have some, any kind of active lifestyle, you, you try to stay in shape. And there's, there's always three things that a person needs if they want to pursue an active lifestyle, if they want to stay in shape. And, 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 and you need diet, exercise, and some kind of motivation, right? Um, I think part of the reason why I was never able to stick with these things is because I, I was just doing them for fun, and they're not very fun long into it. So you, you have to eat right if you want to be healthy, right? You can't just run and exercise, although that's helpful, um, but you have, you have to eat right. Uh, but any nutritionist will tell you that at the same time, while your diet is so important, what you're putting in consuming is really important, you have to exercise as well. You, you got to work out. That's the basic. It doesn't really matter what diet you do or just work out and eat right, and you're probably going to lose some weight. Uh, but what you also need is a little bit of motivation. That's why you'll find a lot of times when people are dieting and they're working out a lot, it's maybe because they're athletes and they're trying to earn the starting spot or win gold. Uh, or it's a, a, a gal trying to fit into her wedding dress. Uh, you know, it's, you've, you've got some kind of, I want to lose weight, I want to get healthy, I want to be stronger for this particular reason. And what we're going to see in our text today is Paul, it's subtle, but Paul sort of makes an analogy from wanting to be physically healthy to our spiritual life as well. well. We'll see those three things are true of also our spiritual life. To be spiritual health, spiritually healthy, we need the same things. We need diet, we need exercise, and we need some kind of motivation. So if you would please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, what I decided to do, I, I had some ideas for where I wanted us to go in terms of some kind of sermon series, and uh, Elder Jesse just kind of threw it out there. Well, I've been working through 1 Timothy. I'm not going to be preaching for a while, so you could always just pick up there. And I thought, you know what, I feel more, a lot more comfortable about doing that than some of the other ideas I had. So whether he knew it or not, he actually kicked us off on our pastoral epistle sermon series. So we're just going to preach through the pastoral epistles. Uh, those are the, the 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Uh, is the Apostle Paul wrote those three books to two men who were young sort of protege pastors. And the contents of the letter is their mentor pastor teaching them how to be pastors. So that's why we call these the pastoral epistles. And so we are just going to work our way through it. We're going to pick up in verses 6 and read through 10. I would ask if you would please follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. Paul, continuing in this letter, he says in verse 6, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise to the present life and also for the life to come. And it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. 
For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And that ends the reading of our text. What we find in this text is what I've titled the sermon today, The Pursuit of Godliness. Paul is calling Timothy to be a godly man, to pursue godliness above all things. He wants Timothy to pursue godliness, to be godly, and to value godliness. So that's why I, I sort of wrote, if, if, you have, if you're a note taker, that's sort of our main idea this morning, your thesis statement, if you will. And it's, it's simply this, as Christians, we must pursue godliness all our lives. As Christians, we must pursue godliness all our lives. The Christian life is a constant pursuit of holiness, a constant pursuit of godliness. And this is a big deal to the Apostle Paul. It's a really big deal. The reason I say that is this word godliness is used 15 times in the New Testament, and 13 of those times it's used in the pastoral epistles. So it's, it's a constant theme throughout the pastoral epistles, this theme of godliness. And what's more amazing is nine of those times it's used in 1 Timothy. So this is really not just our sermon text today. It's a theme throughout Paul's first epistle to Timothy, this theme of godliness. We must pursue godliness. Another way to think of this is what we call in the Christian life, the big doctrinal word, is sanctification. Sanctification is the doctrine where we believe we are to be growing in holiness. If, if the Spirit has indwelled us and we are mortifying, we are killing sin, walking with the Spirit, we should expect growth in our godliness. As the book of Romans says, we are being conformed to the image of God, of Christ Jesus. And before we really break down the text, I, I, I think we need to stress one quick side note. Uh, the Bible places a huge emphasis on how we live. The Bible is not afraid to talk about godliness, to call us to holiness, to call us to a life of sanctification and repentance. And the reason I say that is because in the evangelical community, I think, and, and this, is, this is a holy fear, this is, this is a good fear, but we're so afraid of coming across as legalists. And what I mean by that is we're so afraid of preaching messages that sound like we're trying to tell people that their works will get them into heaven. That's a false gospel. That's not true. And so we're so afraid of teaching that, that we have a dangerous temptation to swing too far the other way and never talk about the importance of living a godly life and calling one another to, to shape up our act a little bit, if you will. And so you need to hear right from the get-go that nothing about this sermon today is, is in any way, shape, or form going to come even close to telling you that your works will justify you before a holy God. Your works are filthy rags. Even your righteous works are filthy rags before a holy God. Your works cannot save you. But that's a different category of discussion. The Apostle Paul knew that justification was by grace through faith alone, but that didn't stop him over 19 times telling his young pastors, you need to be godly. You need to be holy. So we are going to talk about the pursuit of godliness, and that's not the same thing as saying earning your way into heaven. But we'll talk a little bit more about that. But we just need to not be afraid as Christians to talk about the importance of living holy lives, pleasing to God and witnessing to the world. And so let's look at what Paul tells Timothy. As I said in our introduction, Paul is calling Timothy to a life of sanctification. He's calling Timothy to be spiritually healthy. And so we see just as with our physical health, we need the same things 
when we want to be spiritually healthy. We need a proper diet. We need to be disciplined, and we need to have something of a determination. Why are we doing this? So those are sort of our alliteration, three points, if you will, uh, our diet, our discipline, and our determination. And the first thing, Paul points Timothy to his diet. What, what does Timothy need to be consuming in order to have a healthy spiritual life? And the answer to that we see is the Word of God. It's the Bible. Now, the Word of God and the word Bible are not actually in this text, so how did I get that? Well, look at what he says in verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And if you'll allow me to stop there to make a brief, this isn't really part of the thesis, but it's so important we hear. I want us to notice what Paul doesn't say at the beginning of this text. Paul doesn't tell Timothy, in pointing these things out to the brethren, you will certainly earn yourself speaking gigs at the best conferences. In pointing these things out to the brethren, you will certainly grow your church. In pointing these things out to the brethren, you're guaranteed to earn more money. In pointing these things out to the brethren, you are for sure going to sign a book deal. He doesn't even say in pointing these things out to the brethren, they're going to love you. What is the goal of the minister of God? Who's the audience of his ministry? Who is he trying to please? The Lord Jesus Christ. In pointing these things out, you will do the one thing you ought to care about. Not conference gigs, not a bigger paycheck, being a good servant of your Lord. So he, he, he subtly reminds Timothy that when you do your work, you have one person in mind. The Lord Jesus Christ, and he's always watching. So as Timothy seeks to please the Lord, he does this by giving himself and his church a proper diet. And he says that in pointing these things out, well, what are these things? Well, obviously, it's everything that followed. It's everything Paul has already instructed him on. So the first thing Paul tells him to give is what Paul already gave to him. So we see that Timothy's primary duty to his church is to point out what the apostles have said. Now, that, that's important. We're going to come back to that. But, but the first element is, is Timothy is to give what the apostles gave. So Timothy wants to have an apostolic ministry, an apostolic faith. He wants to say, here's what Paul would do. Here's what Peter would do. Right? But, but Paul continues and he expands that out because he says, not only in pointing these things out will you be a good servant of Christ Jesus, but you will be what? Constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. So that's a much more all-encompassing term. I love, I, I chose to preach from the NASB today because, because of this verse, because I love, they throw this word in constantly, constantly nourished. Now admitted, that, that word is actually not in the Greek, but the reason they put it in there is to bring out the tense of the word that's in the Greek. And the Greek word there for, the, for nourished, or some of your translations might say training, in the Greek, it's the, the tense of that word uh, tells us of an ongoing action. Uh, you're not just read, read it nourished once. It's not a future. It's something that's constantly happening. You're constantly, that's why I really appreciate them throwing that in. Constantly nourished. On what? The words of the faith and the sound doctrine which you have followed. So this is clearly the entire Christian faith which Timothy knew from his Old Testament scriptures and what the apostles gave him. And when we talk about the Old Testament scriptures and the apostolic deposit, you know what that equals? Our Bible. <laughs> it's what the prophets wrote, what the apostles said. So that's why the easiest way of summarizing this is the, our diet as Christians, what we need to be feasting on is the Bible. 
In the Nicene Creed, they talk about having one apostolic faith. Recognizing we want what the apostles revealed. What did the apostles teach us about the Old Testament prophets? What did the apostles reveal? We want an apostolic faith, faith that stands upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. We want to feast on all the words of the faith, on all the sound doctrine that Timothy had been following, as 2 Timothy says, from the time he was a child learning the Old Testament scriptures to now as the apostles reveal the apostolic New Testament faith. So, in short, we are supposed to be constantly nourished by the Christian faith, by sound and good doctrine, which Timothy received from the Old Testament prophets and from the apostles firsthand. So, again, shorthand word, our diet as Christians, we need to be constantly nourished on the word. We were just talking in Sunday school today. Uh, Elder Bill made a really good point where he said, you know, we have so many blessings out there in terms of teachers and studies and, and theological books. And don't hear me putting those down. I, my, one of my goals in this church is that we would be constantly growing in our love for reading and our love for study. I wish everyone in this church was constantly in some good theological book. I, I would love that. So don't hear me saying some kind of isolationist don't listen to teachers, don't buy blogs and articles, just you and your Bible go sit under the tree, that's all you need. That's not what I'm saying. But people like me, especially, we have a tendency to really consume much more of what other people have said about the Bible more than the Bible itself. That, that's just a tendency that I have. And honestly, it's laziness because the Bible requires a lot more work. When I read a theological book, they're just telling me what to think. It's very clear. This is, this is what to think. When you, do the, when you read the Bible, like especially if it's a narrative, or you, you have to dig. You have to think, what is God saying? So sometimes it's just convenient. Just tell me what to think. But theological books are not ultimately my diet. They should be in there. I would, again, I, I can recommend you a book anytime you want. But what is it that's ultimately supposed to be constantly nourishing Timothy? Constantly the words of the faith. Sound doctrine. We want to be people who love the word, the apostolic deposit that we have been given. I, I had a, an old friend who I haven't talked to in a long time message me on Facebook and say, I'm, I'm battling with depression. Do you have any good verses that I can read for depression? He's kind of a nominal Christian. And I didn't say it this way. This isn't very pastoral. But what I, what I wanted to say is, yeah, I've, I've got some good verses on depression. The whole thing. Every one of them. I know what he meant, like, you know, are there any verses that speak to a particular season in my life? And there are. But, but ultimately, we are supposed to feel nourished and refreshed and encouraged by the entire faith. Every word of the faith, all good and sound doctrine. I would encourage people during times of depression and doubt, you don't necessarily have to go seeking verses on depression. Just learning more about God is nourishing. Learning more about what he has said, what he has done, what he has said about you, what he has done for you, whether you're in Malachi or Matthew, Revelation or Genesis, there is something there to feast on, something there to encourage you, to build you, to strengthen you. The whole thing is what you need when you're depressed. The whole thing is what you need when you're not depressed. Nourish on the words of the faith and on sound doctrine, constantly nourished, constantly feasting, a healthy spiritual diet. The words of the apostles and the prophets. Sound doctrine. That is what we need to be feasting on. We need to be spiritually healthy. We need to have a diet. And notice Paul compares that. Eat healthy food. And he also reminds us, don't eat junk food. 
It's, it's not just enough to eat healthy if you're still constantly consuming on junk. You, you've got to do both. You've got to replace one for the other. So he says, feast on the words that I have given you. Feast on the teachings you have already been following. But what are you not to feast on? Verse 7. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Now, I have to say, this is something here that I'm actually not happy that the NASB did. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, uh, so I'm maybe speaking out of ignorance here. But just the little bit of word study I did, there's that phrase in the NSB that, that maybe rubs people the wrong way, fit for old women. Uh, I, I think that maybe a better translation would be what the NIV did, which is wives' tales. Now, don't hear me. I'm not cowering away from this, okay? Let me just say something. I, I, I am not afraid to, to say what the Bible says, especially in terms of gender roles. I, I'm not embarrassed to say that husbands are the head of the household. I'm not embarrassed by that. I'm not embarrassed to say that women cannot be elders in the church. They cannot preach and teach and have authority. So I'm not cowering away. I'm not embarrassed by anything here. I just don't think that the, the NSB, they, they have this very literal, this, that's literally what the word means. It's something related to old women. But I think in the context, what, what Paul is essentially saying is when we talk about a wives' tale, we're not really trying to make a big statement about the sinful proclivities of old women. It's more just an expression for things that you don't really need to be caring about. It's, 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 it's rumor, it's gossip, it's gone through the ages, it's, it's not fit. You don't need to be worried about all of that stuff. So I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe the Apostle Paul here is really trying to give us some big teaching about old women and their proclivities to pass along irrelevant, godless information. I don't know, maybe he's doing that, but I see it as being a little, not so literal, and more of just an expression. He, in other words, he's, he's telling Timothy, there are some things that people consume their minds and conversations with, they're obsessed with talking about these talking points, and Paul is telling you, those are not edifying for you. I'll be honest, I don't know specifically what Paul has in mind here. All throughout 1 Timothy, Paul is constantly calling Timothy back to some of the hearsay of his day. He began in chapter 1 by talking about teachers of the law who, 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 who spend all their time talking about law and the genealogy of faith families. And Paul says they make grand statements and uh, sure, confident assertions about the things they would know nothing about. So there was some kind of false teaching about the law and genealogies. And, and then earlier in chapter 4, he talked about uh, people who were doing these bodily, aesthetic, pious practices like, you know, f uh, forbidding people from eating certain kinds of foods and, and abstaining from marriage. So, so then he, he, he turns from the law and genealogies to these kind of very pious religious ceremonies. And, and, and he even continues at the end of the letter, he brings up again these, these um, worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. So you could maybe try to tie all these together to like one heresy or one group in the church. But I think Paul is addressing just a wide array of things that have nothing to do with Scripture, things that have nothing to do with what the apostles taught, what the apostles focused on, and he's calling Timothy to avoid those conversations. Notice, he doesn't even, he doesn't even point out the fact that this, this chatter, these worldly fables, these old wives' tales, he doesn't even just point out that they're wrong. His specific emphasis here is that they, they don't do anything. They're without power. They're unedifying. They're not going to help you. They're not going to change you. They're not going to fix you. So avoid any of those things that, that, that have nothing to do with what the apostles have said, with what the Bible has revealed. As, as Paul says in Colossians, do not be deceived by empty philosophies, 
which are based on the elemental principles of the world rather than based on Christ. We want to focus our mind and our thoughts and our conversations on Christ and what his apostles and prophets have revealed. And there's a lot of other speculation and philosophies and worldviews we don't really need to spend our time talking about. I dare say, I could be wrong, I dare say here in Roswell, a lot of those alien conversations may be that. Let's talk about the Bible. But here, here's why I say he's not so much just focused on the, that these, these things are false, these worldly fables, these wives' tales, that they're false. He focuses primarily on the fact that they don't actually change you. They don't do anything. Because look at what he goes on to say. He doesn't say, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Or he doesn't say, on the other hand, focus on godly fables or whatever that... He juxtaposes this silly chatter, these worldly fables, to what? Godliness, godly practice. So the link in Paul's mind here is that when you consume the right diet, when you feast on what you're supposed to feast on, that will enable you then to pursue godly practice. Our theology affects how we live. Theology matters. Our, what we, we say that our, theolo- our, our, our theology leads to orthopraxy. We What we study, what we believe, what we understand, that will affect the way we live. And so if Timothy is going to have the right diet, then that will enable him to live the right way. And so that brings us to our next point, that in order to have a healthy spiritual life, we need to have discipline. We need to be disciplined. We need to train ourselves. And what that essentially means is obedience. Obedience to God's law. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. He's calling Timothy to godliness, to holiness, that is obedience. Loving God rightly, living for God rightly. And that's why he then in verse 8 compares this to sort of physical exercise. He says in verse 8, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, it it is very possible that when he talks about bodily discipline here, he's referring back to the the aesthetic practices of forbidding marriage and and forbidding eating certain foods. He very well could be talking about those, but I, I really don't think he is. And the reason I don't is because, one, it's common for Paul throughout his epistles to make analogies to uh, spiritual, or forgive me, to like athletic events, right? He talks about running the race. He makes comparisons to the Olympic crowns that they would receive when, when they win. He talks about fighting the good fight. Uh, Paul is, is, is prone to sort of compare our spiritual life to the very athletic environment that he was in. And throughout this chapter, or throughout this preaching section, your different translations might read different things, but we have all over the, the Greek word that we get gymnasium from. It's all over gymnasium or gymnastics. The word we get that from is the Greek word used throughout this text. I, I think Paul is essentially calling Timothy to enter God's weight room, enter God's gym, and get to work. Right? And so he says bodily discipline is only of little profit. And that makes sense. Like if, if you work out and you get really healthy and you get strong, that's, that's profitable. But it, it really has its limitations. It's, it's profitable if you're, an, if you're an athlete. It's profitable if you're, I don't know, a bouncer. But, but how far does your six-pack really take you? Uh, how far? I mean, uh, you live longer. That's good. But you, you're, you're not taking that stuff to the grave. 
Not, not even in every area of life does it benefit you. It, it, it's, it has a very narrow benefit. But Paul is saying spiritual discipline, spiritual training, to be fit spiritually, to be healthy spiritually, to be strong spiritually, that has permanent consequences both here and in eternity. It's so much more important. So he says, in the same way that you would train yourself bodily, how much more do you need to train yourself for godliness, to live a disciplined life of obedience? And, and really what he's really telling us here is this, and it's, it's not fun to listen to, but here's the point. Holiness is hard work. The main point of, of what Paul is saying, at least here specifically, is that holiness doesn't come easy, right? We, we don't just sit on the couch and say, okay, spirit, time to transform me. Time to make me new. He does that in justification. He does that in our standing before God. But we have to put work into obedience. It's hard work to turn down the temptations of the flesh. It's hard work to refuse to gossip when everyone else in the office is gossiping. It's hard work to live a life of obedience. But Paul tells us you need to live it. You need to train. You need to work hard at godliness. It doesn't come easy, but it is what we are called to do. As a matter of fact, turn back just to, uh, to 1 Thessalonians, just a couple books, chapter 4. You know, one of the most popular questions that you hear Christians asking all, a lot is, what's God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? Does he want me to take that job? Does he want me to marry that person? How many kids does he want? What does God want from me? What's God's will for my life? And there's a lot of things God doesn't give us direct revelation on, right? He doesn't, he doesn't tell us specifically, you know, in a dream or in a vision, go marry this person and have this many kids. But the Bible does tell us what God's will for your life is. You want to know what God wants from you, what God expects from you? Here's what God wants. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For you know what command, beginning, beginning in verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What's God's will for your life? Godliness. I don't know what job he wants you to take. I don't know what person he wants you to marry, but here's what I know he wants from you. Live a holy life. Reject impurities. Reject passions and sinful longings and walk after God. But again, as we go back to our text, this is not easy. This is something we need accountability and help with. This is something we have to train in and work hard in. But Paul says that it's worth it because godliness is profitable for all things in this life and the life to come. And then he says in verse 9 that this is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. Now, some people will want to connect that to verse 10. I think it very naturally connects to verse 9. And Paul throws this in throughout the pastoral epistles a lot when he's really trying to emphasize a point. 
He's saying, this is true. Believe this. Hold on to this. And here's what Paul wants you to understand. Here's what he wants you to emphasize, that godliness is worth it. It's worth it now. It's worth it in eternity. Godliness is worth it. It's a trustworthy statement. So keep up the fight. Keep up the fight. Now, he, he then moves in into verse 10. And we see again Paul's emphasis on how difficult holiness is. Because look at what he says. For it is, it is for this that we labor and strive. He uses these words in Philippians when he's describing athletic conquest. The picture we want to get is, you know, when someone's running a race and they're conditioning and they're just bent over and they're huffing and they're puffing and they can barely take another step. Paul's saying that's what we do spiritually in this life. We are, because because the thing is, is unlike athletic practice, we never stop. When it comes to godliness, we never stop, right? When you're on a team, you've got practice from six to nine, but then after that, you know, the day, your day is yours. Do what you want. But it doesn't work that way with godliness. God doesn't say, listen, from, from 9 to 5, that's your work day. You need to be holy then. But after 5 o'clock, just kick back, go have fun, do whatever you want. I don't care. The time is yours. No, every moment of every day, we are called to train in godliness. There's a, a good book I would recommend to you called The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. This is an abridged version, which means it's easier to read. So if you ever want to borrow this, you can. But essentially, this is just on, mortification means to kill, to kill sin in our lives. And this is a great book encouraging Christians to pursue holiness, to pursue godliness. And he says this, do you mortify your sin? Do you make it your daily work? You must always be at it while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Do you make it your daily work? We wake up every day and it's another day where it's time to make the Lord proud. It's tough work. We labor and we strive. And so the question we have to ask is, is this worth it? What's my motivation for all of this hard work? To be constantly nourishing on the faith, to be laboring and striving and training all the time, day after day after day. Why should I? And here's what Paul says. It is for this reason, verse 10, that we labor and strive. Why do we do it? Because we have fixed our hope on the living God. You want to know what your motivation is? It's pretty beautiful. It's God himself. We fixed our hope. We do this. We fixed our hope. Why? On the living God. God is the prize. God is the motivation. It's not to look better and to fit in our dress. It's not to fit in our tux. It's not to be the best athlete. Our motivation is God. And and what specifically about? He's the living God. He's the only one. And he's the savior of all men, especially of Believers, especially those who believe. We'll break that down in a minute, but here's his point. God is the good and gracious, merciful God who has rescued you, protected you, redeemed you, saved you. That's our motivation. Again, he doesn't say, why do we do this? So that you can be saved, so that you can justify yourself by your good works. He doesn't say that. So we have our hope fixed on the living God. He's able to give you strength. He's what makes it worth it. It's his law. It's the life you live is the one he has given you. It's his spirit that has filled you. It is our goal to dwell with him and to be with him forever. God is the ultimate goal. 
One commentator put it this way, no one has ever claimed that the Christian life is an easy way, but its goal is God. It is because life is lived in the presence of God and ends in his still nearer presence that the Christian is willing to endure as he does. The greatness of the goal makes the toil worthwhile. It's the greatest goal, the greatest motivation we can have to please God, to be nearer to God, to be more like God. God is our motivation. We feast, we have a diet, which is the word. We discipline, we, obedi- we have obedience, we, we have a discipline, a training regiment, if you will, and we have a motivation to please God. Now, we can't leave this sermon because this is a Reformed church and not address this verse. Let me just tell you, I was so excited to talk about this verse. Uh, we believe and preach and teach a doctrine here that uh, is known as limited atonement. Or if you really want to show off how reformed you are, you'll use the more advanced phrase, particular redemption. And then people think you're really smart if you, if you choose that. What does this mean? What does limited atonement mean? What does particular redemption mean? Well, this means that contrary to what has become very popular in evangelicalism, the Reformed faith, we do not believe that Jesus died for every single human being that's ever lived. Jesus' death was applicable. It was for people, and we call that atonement. So the question is, is who did Jesus make atonement for? Who was he atoning for? Just like in the Old Testament, the atonement was only for the Jews, and for anyone else who would gather. They weren't just atoning, just kind of spraying the atonement across the globe. It was for a particular people. In the same way Christ, as he fulfills that shadow, he came and he atoned for a particular people. He came, as he says in John 6, for those that the Father has given him. He died for his people, not for each and every human being that's ever lived. And this is a bit of a side note. One of the reasons why people get so upset with this doctrine is because we have grown accustomed when we preach the gospel to people. It typically sounds like this. This is typically our evangelical gospel presentation. You ready? It sounds like this. God loves you so much. He just loves you so much. And he sent Jesus. And Jesus died for your sins. And then when we tell people this doctrine, they don't get to preach the gospel like that anymore. Because we don't know that. But you want to know what's interesting? That gospel presentation we love so much, we cling to so much, it never once came out of the mouth of an apostle. We have the apostles preaching the gospel a lot, not just in their epistles, but narrative stories of them preaching the gospel to unsaved people, to Jews even. And you want to know what they never, ever, ever say? Jesus died for you. They don't ever say that. They say things like, Jesus died for sinners. But you will never see an apostle look an individual in the eye and say, Jesus died for you. They'll say, Jesus died for the church. Paul says that we, 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 we preached the first week I was here in, in Acts chapter 20, that the church is whom Jesus redeemed by his own blood. Jesus died for the church. We see that. We see Jesus died for sinners. We see that. We see Jesus died for the many. We see that. We see Jesus laid his life down for the sheep. We see that. But we never have an individual told Jesus died for, for you. So that shouldn't make you afraid that you ought not to say that because all I'm asking you to do is to preach the gospel like the apostles. And that shouldn't be something we're upset to do. That's what I want to do. I want to preach the gospel like Peter. But this is one of the main verses that people will turn to to refute this notion. 
Oh, you think Jesus didn't die for every single human being? Well, what do you do with 1 Timothy 4? Because 1 Timothy 4 tells me that Christ Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. So clearly, he died for everyone. So before we finish off by saying what this verse means, let me just first tell you a few things it does not mean. Here's a few things we know grammatically, contextually, this verse cannot be saying. The first one is it's not teaching what we call universalism. Who knows what's universalism? Who knows what universalism is? Audience participation. That everyone will be saved. This actually supports universalism better than it does the non-reformed interpretation. Because what does it say? Jesus saved who? Everyone. Now, we know that what he's not saying is that every single human being who's ever lived shall be saved. And there's a few reasons why. The number one is there's an overall contextual reason. We know from the Apostle Paul, he talks all the time about those who are perishing, those who have perished, those who will not see life. The Apostle Paul was not a universalist. So we know overall context, that's definitely not what he's saying. We also know that's not what he's saying because the, the, the qualification makes no sense, especially those who believed. That's like saying, I picked 10 oranges, but I especially picked oranges. If God just saves all people, then he didn't especially save believers. He saved them in the exact same way that he saved non-believers. So contextually, Paul's overall body of work denies this, and the immediate context denies this as well. And then the last reason we reject this, and we'll talk about it more in a second, is because it's assuming the phrase all men or all people means every individual that's ever lived, and that's an assumption. So we ought to reject universalism right off the bat. But we also ought to reject the non-reformed interpretation, and here's why. Because they actually insert quite a bit into this text that isn't there. Does this text say, we have fixed our hope on the living God who died for all men, but especially saves believers? It doesn't say that. You see, how people want to interpret this is that this is talking about Jesus died for everyone, but then uniquely saves those who believe. But it doesn't talk about who Jesus died for. It uses the word save both times. It uses the word save both times. And the context here is not Jesus, it's the Father. The Father did not die on a cross for you. The Father did not die for you. Jesus died for you. So they're inserting Jesus into the text, and then they're inserting died into the text. They have to insert two concepts that aren't there. Or they can insert a different context. Well, here's what we mean. Jesus died to potentially save all people, but then he only actually saves those who believe. That's how they interpret this. But again, those words are not in this verse. It doesn't say anything about God who tries to save all men, but then only accomplishes the salvation of believers. It doesn't say he tries to save them. It doesn't say he potentially saves them. It says he is their savior. So the non-reformed interpretation tries too hard to add concepts or change definitions. All they see is a universal application with a, a unique view of believe and think it supports their view, but it, it, it doesn't. This text does not talk about who Jesus died for. It's not what this text is talking about. This text does not talk about God trying to do something and failing to do it. And, and even then, it doesn't really make sense of, especially if we insert the word potentially, what does it mean God potentially saves all men, especially those who believe? So what does it mean that God 
especially potentially saves those who believe. It's, it's, I don't mean to be rude, it's, it's grammatical nonsense. We ought to reject it. This text is not teaching universalism, but it's also not addressing who Jesus died for. That's, and, and lastly, I would say this, it kind of goes against Paul's point. I mean, Paul's really, really revving up to some climax here, right? Like, okay, you, you need to feast on the word and you need to strive for godliness. You need to work really, really, really hard. But here's your hope. The God who tries to save people and sometimes can't do it. What a climax. No, that's not our hope. Our hope is not the God who failed to save those he wanted to save. That's not our hope. Rather, I think the best interpretation of this, it's, it's a difficult verse, there's no doubt. Even Reformed folks sort of disagree on the meaning of it. But I think, although we can definitely know what it does not say, I, I would submit this to you. The word saved is oftentimes, actually primarily, the vast majority of the time it's used in the Old and New Testament, in what we call the LXX, the Septuagint, um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word saved is all over there. And it almost always applies to a kind of physical salvation, being saved from an attacking army. So what I think, and I think this is the only consistent, clear way of reading this text, here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. We set our hope on the living God, the living, the monotheistic, the only God that actually exists. All other gods are idols. We set our hope on the living God, and, and here's why that's so great, because he is the one who saves, not salvifically, but he is the one, this, this, some of your translations may even render this as protects or perseveres. In other words, he is the good and living God who gives life and breath and goodness to all men. And just as a side note, when you read the word all men in the Bible, people want you to assume it means every single human being ever. Uh, but usually it's actually categories. It's, it means Jew and Gentile alike, not necessarily every single person. Uh, we tend to do that with the word all. When the Apostle Paul says, I have all things in Christ, he didn't have a Ferrari. So we have to define all contextually. When John the Baptist was preaching in Jerusalem and it says, all of Judea came down to hear him preach, I think it's possible that maybe one or two people in all of Jerusalem stayed home. Uh, so it's not always as universal. All men is categories, it's not individuals. But the point is that all kinds of people, all peoples all across the world, God the Father, our monotheistic God, he is the one who perseveres, protects, and gives life to them. And then he especially is good to who? Believers. That's why I think it actually has like a bit of a double meaning. I, I think it, it very well is talking about s salvation with believers, but it's talking about our whole Christian life. God did not just save you spiritually. He has been good to you your entire life. He has been protecting you. He has been persevering you. He has been showering gifts upon you. Even when you were in your state of unbelief, he was still your defender, perseverer, and savior. And now that you've come to faith, how much more has he given you? Life eternal, every blessing in the spiritual realm. So he is good to all people. He is the protector, preserver, and defender of all people, and especially of those who believe. He has given you more than we can even fathom. And Paul says that kind of a God, the God who does not fail to save whom he wants, the God who is good to all men, the God who has been especially good to you, he's your hope. He makes the training and the toiling and the striving, he makes it worth it. So in summary, this is what Paul is saying. Feast on the word, pursue godliness, and never forget that God is worth it.
He's worth it. He's worth the fight. What is it? I'm, I'm, I'm way over my time. I apologize. Let me just say this. What is it when we hear of stories like Voice of the Martyrs, of people from the first century to today, what is it that gets them through that kind of persecution? How easy would it be to protect your own life, to protect your own body, to protect your own family, to just, to just say the words, I, I reject Christ. Just say it. You don't even have to believe it. Just say it. Save your family. Save your lives. Why don't the martyrs do that? It's because they have tasted the sweetness of how good our, our God is. He is the Savior of all men. He is the living God. He has been especially saving to those who believe. He has given me more than I deserve. He has always given me more than I deserve. He is altogether lovely and righteous. He's worth everything. He's worth my comfort. He's worth my life. He's worth it. That's their hope. In times of persecution, in times of strength, God is worth it. Every time we sin, we make the conscious decision that my God is not worth my obedience. And it's a lie. He is worth everything. He's worth our obedience. He's worth our training. He's worth the pursuit of godliness. And we can only do that. We can only know what that looks like if we are a people who are constantly feasting on his word. So feast on his word, pursue godliness, and never lose sight that he is the goal, he is the prize, and he makes all the toil and labor worth it. It was worth it for Timothy. It's worth it for us.